This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio brings you prescribed listening from our trusted contributors at the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Okay, well, uh, we're on a roll with a theme here of um, hospitals, hospital wait times, getting out of the hospital, avoiding hospital stays. So, um, have you had to stay in the hospital at any point? And if you or a loved one have ever had to prepare to either enter or leave a hospital, there are many things you should know first, from understanding what to pack questions to ask your healthcare providers and to the discussion you should have with your loved ones prior to being admitted. Your pharmacist can offer what's called advanced care planning and meds check. And uh, these are things that you really should be aware of. So I am here with our trusted contributor from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. He's going to answer your calls and your questions about this. And of course, any other pharma questions you have, the numbers, uh, before we say hi, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Hi, John, how are you? Hey, it's good to be back. Good to be here. And I see you are wearing the jersey today uh, to pay tribute to the victims in Humboldt, so I just wanted to recognize that. Yeah, thank you. What a tragedy. And I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, the hearts uh, uh, of many Canadians are, you know, uh, with 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 them, uh, unfortunately, is uh, something that, uh, you know, many people are having a difficult time dealing with it's uh i've seen you know i've talked to a lot of patients in the store uh over the last you know couple of days and it's uh it's amazing to see the impact that this has had on people yeah um okay um there's a hard uh, over to our topic of choice so uh generally speaking um if you're going to the hospital for some kind of surgery you have a kind of uh, pre-appointment, which is can be a little complicated because there are certain drugs you have to stop taking, certain drugs you have to start taking. Uh, what about all that? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and the pharmacist is there to help. Uh, where we see a lot of medication errors, it's during that transition of care. So when people are going into hospital and when people are going out, particularly if they're going to be admitted, what tends to happen is they go in, they don't have a comprehensive medication list. Maybe they don't uh, pass on all the information to the surgeon or, you know, the team at the hospital. And they end up being in hospital and maybe getting taken off certain medications. Same thing could happen when they're leaving. Uh, changes are inevitably made during their hospital stay. You come off. A lot of times the team outside of the hospital isn't aware of, you know, what took place or should you still be on that blood pressure medication? Was it intended to be left off? Uh, and we spend a lot of time as pharmacists trying to sort that out. I think... The easiest thing you could do as a patient before you go to that meeting, uh, that first meeting where you get some blood work taken, have a discussion with the team at the hospital, is come in, visit your community pharmacist, 
get a comprehensive medication review and leave a, uh, with a list of your most current medications. That's very, very important because that'll allow the team at the hospital to see what you're actually on and then make those decisions around, hey, uh, do we have to hold any medications prior to your visit? And that's uh, something that's commonly done with things like anticoagulants and whatnot. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, so uh, I remember, what do they tell you? You can't have ibuprofen for, right. for, what, five days beforehand? Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of the general rule, probably a little bit of overkill, but depending on the type of surgery you're going in for, we really, really want to try to avoid bleeding. So things like ibuprofen, aspirin potentially, uh, anticoagulants like warfarin, new class of drugs called the DOAX. Uh, what uh, are we, they? Uh, they're, they're like warfarin, similar to warfarin. They don't, uh, they don't require blood monitoring. Uh, you wouldn't have to come off those as early, but again, we use them commonly uh, to thin the blood. So things like that, we've got to make some very uh, specific decisions around, and it's very uh, individualized some, in some cases. So uh, having that comprehensive list with you, uh, your pharmacist could definitely also guide you with respect to what to do, but it's something that you should be prepared for and not just show up the last minute uh, unclear on maybe what you're taking or, or what, what's recent and what's not. Um also, a lot of questions on uh, what happens in the discharge, because uh, here's, and I'm reminded of, of a caller we had today, and my heart goes out to her as the, she injured herself. She's waiting, she's been waiting since the beginning of the month. She's in pain. Uh, she's waiting for a CAT scan, needs a CAT scan before she can get the surgery, wait, wait times for everything. And, and she said quite poignantly that she could she could understand how it happens that you get hooked on some opioids while you're taking the painkillers. So people get discharged after surgery usually with painkillers. Uh, you know, how do you know a, a lot of people keep taking them? A lot of people stop taking them? Uh, what, what should you talk about with your pharmacist on that front? Yeah, I find there... It, the hospitals now are more cautious with respect to the number or the, the size of the prescription they give you when you get discharged, particularly for opioids. It used to be I would see very big scripts, like maybe 100 tablets, 150 tablets for even minor procedures. You rarely see that anymore. I think they're they're really uh, aware of the fact that, hey, let's let's be careful with how much we leave, these patients live with, uh, leave with. But um, always a conversation to have with your pharmacist. We spend a lot of time talking to patients about, hey, if you're having pain, it's okay to take it. But if you're not having pain, you don't have to. Uh, in many cases, these prescriptions are prescribed on an as-needed basis, right? So uh, if the surgery isn't, ex- you know, extremely traumatic, you may be able to get away with some, uh, you know, uh, plain Tylenol as opposed to taking the op- opioids. That being said, if you're in pain, we want you to take that medication because uh, controlling and managing the pain actually helps with the healing process uh, also. So it's one of those conversations you should have uh, depending on how long you've been on some of these medications. Sometimes we have to wean you off as well. You don't just cut it cold turkey. So there's strategies to deal with all that. But it is very individualized depending A, on the you know type of procedure the patients had and then B, on how long they've been on it. Occasionally you go into hospital you know, you're already on pain medication. Uh, you have a procedure. Uh, during that procedure, the doses get escalated. And then, you know, people forget to bring them down after. So you're on that escalated dose. Uh, maybe you still need the pain because you're having pain medication because you're taking it for something else. But the idea is to, to make sure we get that dose back down to the minimum effective dose. And things like that, I find, slip through the cracks all the time. And, and what about... 
Is it a good idea, say you're home after a procedure and uh, you're taking a painkiller and it says once every six hours, like, should you try and see, well, maybe can I go eight? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the first few days after surgery, probably not. But as you start to feel better, yeah, if you could you spread it out. It's always about with opioids, especially, uh, it's about the lowest effective dose. We want to keep patients on the lowest dose that works. And if it's possible to get them off it and use a non-opioid alternative, that's kind of what we gun for. But, uh, uh, you know, work with your healthcare team because uh, if we could get you off those drugs, obviously that's our ultimate goal. Okay, let's uh, take a call from Tracy in Stony Creek. Hi, Tracy. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I have a question. I just went to my doctor, and um, I have a few questions, actually. Um, My vitamin D is as low as it can get, so I purchased last night some vitamin D. Um, I have to take 2,000 milligrams, as well as my omega is low, as well as my hemoglobin. So I wanted to know, is there something alternative that I can take, or is this pretty much what I what I need to take, or is there yeah, something that you can, some insight that you can give me? No, yeah, it sounds like you're you're doing the right thing. It's not okay. uncommon in Canada after a winter like the one we've had for uh, uh, patients to be low on vitamin D, um, especially but if they have... very, very extremely low. Yeah, no, and I think... And I'm feeling um, lethargic and uh, to a point where, I mean, I, I do what I got to do just because I have to, but I'm just, I'm just not... And my, my bones are, like, my muscles, not my bones, my muscles are achy. Yeah, so that, I mean, the lethargy is probably most likely due to the low hemoglobin. Did they prescribe you some iron or did they ask you to take some iron No, they didn't, but I have to go on April 30th. They just called me today, <laughs> and she's going to um, send me to do more blood work to see if things have improved, and if not, I probably have to take probably iron, I would, I would assume. Now, m- my son did take... When he was little, he had a hemoglobin problem, and I probably, it probably came from me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, my, my advice would be, in the short term, take a multivitamin with some iron in it until they sort out yeah, how, how low you are. Keep taking that vitamin D. There's probably some vitamin D in the multi, multivitamin, okay, but it's I'm a low Okay, now I'm doing protein shakes as well. It's not nothing with soy, wrong with that. With, uh, with almond milk and some hemp, hemp heart. So yeah. does it, would that help? Yeah, I mean it, it should. It, I mean it may may help a little bit, but I think let's deal with the underlying problem. Get those under. Get the the low vitamin D levels up. I think you're doing okay. the right thing. The multivitamin will help a little bit with the iron until they sort out what's going on there uh, as well. Okay, Tracy. Thanks so much for your call. Okay, thank you very much for helping. Thank okay. you. Okay. Okay, uh, we are going to take a quick break, but we will come back to answer more of your questions for John Papasturgio, our trusted contributor from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Before we go to break, the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. 
Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio brings you prescribed listening from our trusted contributors at the Ontario Pharmacists Association. I'm here with our trusted contributor from the Ontario Pharmacists Association, John Puppesturgio, and we are taking your calls and questions about all your pharmaceutical questions. We have been talking about what you have to know if you're going into the hospital, uh, that it's a good idea to get a complete list of your current medications to give to the surgeon and uh, his or her team so that they know what to give you in hospital. Otherwise, things can go awry. There's also a lot to know when you come out of the hospital. Uh, But let's go right to the phones. We have Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. Libby, hello, John. Hey, how are you, Dennis? So my question is regarding uh, vitamin B12. And uh, I am uh, uh, 65 plus. I have been taking a multivitamin for adults 65 and older. Uh, which does have B12 in it. Uh, actually, it has four times the RDA. I think the RDA is around two, and this has 12. And uh, my hemoglobin is low, as are my platelets and the red blood cell count. And uh, But strangely enough, and there is no iron in the multi, by the way, mm-hmm. but my B12 is, is uh, the upper part of the range, according to my lab, is 652, and I'm sitting at 963. I am uh, largely vegetarian, although I do eat fish and seafood, but no meat or other kinds of, or eggs. Okay. So my question is, do you have any idea as to why my B12 is as high as it is? Well, you've been, you've been supplementing with it for a while? Is it? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the reason. I, you could probably hold off on the supplementation if it's, uh, if it's that high. Um, the you mentioned you're anemic, and I would imagine the anemia is the result of iron because you're getting at two types of an anemia. It's the iron deficiency anemias, and then those microcytic anemias that are due like to the B, lack of you know the B vitamins and whatnot. But uh, I would think it's probably uh, the hemoglobin uh, issue. Uh, yep. Is uh, have you thought about taking some iron, uh, like maybe a multivitamin? With, we kind of talked about this with the last caller, but a multivitamin with some iron in there, or even iron on its own, and see if we could get that corrected. Uh, it could just be uh, my doctor, by the way, and I have been low for oh a few a few years now. When I've had checkups, it, it's typically low. She doctor hasn't been overly concerned, and of course, a lot of the advice has been, you know, when you're a male, particularly over sixty-five, you should. Not, Avoid iron in your multivitamin. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the constipation, some other issues potentially. But there's so so little iron in those multivitamins that I'm not really worried about iron overloading you. The other issue with low, low um, you know, hemoglobin is potential, especially as you get older, for, for smaller bleeds. Have you had a colonoscopy uh, recently or anything like that? Uh, nothing like that at all. I, did, I had some surgery a year ago. Okay. Could I mean over a year that should have corrected itself? I agree. Uh, yeah, I mean it's not. It's always worth getting a you know a colonoscopy done if you haven't had one, especially as you get a little bit older. There, yeah. Uh, for screening, sometimes you get these polyps and whatnot, result in some minor bleeds, and uh, uh, you'd want to get that managed. But I imagine it's more closely related to your diet. You know, you're vegetarian, not eating meat. Uh, probably just a little bit low uh, on iron from your diet. I'd suggest taking either a multivitamin with iron or just iron on its own. Uh, Let's see if that corrects it. But hold off on that B12 because your B levels are high. I don't think you need to take it anymore. 
Yes, and of course it was in my multi, so I, I've actually stopped the multivitamin. So my, I guess I'm, you've raised another question because I had contemplated just you know not taking a multivitamin because my diet's actually pretty good in terms of nutrients I get. I lots of leafy yeah, greens. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'd probably you don't probably need the multivitamin. Let's just try some iron on its own. It's kept behind the pharmacy. Go talk to your pharmacist. Have that kind of exact same discussion we had. I okay. think they'll come to the same conclusion. And let's see over the next month or so if we could get that iron level up. Very okay, good. Okay, Dennis. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Okay, uh, numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, I guess uh, vitamin D levels can be an issue. I'm looking out at this uh, yucky gray day uh, with more of the same on the horizon. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, with our kind of weather patterns here in Canada, it's uh, something that uh, many Canadians uh, are deficient in. If, uh, you know, if you have the opportunity, grab a multivitamin, even as low as 400 units a day is enough to kind of help supplement what we're losing with respect to the lack of sun here in Canada. For those that don't know, the sun is very important in in creating vitamin D uh, in your body naturally. So uh, even in the summers now, many people are constantly wearing sunscreens, right? So that's a barrier. And we see that the activation of vitamin D uh, uh, is even is low in some people even in the summers because they're, they're always kind of covered up with sunscreen. Well, so we're supposed to be. Absolutely supposed to be, yeah. But uh, uh, if you're worried about lower vitamin D levels, just supplement with it. It's fine. And there is vitamin D in many foods. It's actually fortified in some foods now. Uh, but I find people tend to be uh, low uh, the, the disadvantage of being low is vitamin D helps with uh, calcium absorption, which is r- important for the bones, right, and bone remineral- remineralization. Um, doesn't hurt to take a supplement. I mean, I think it's it's very, very cheap, too. I think a bottle of vitamin D is like 2 or $3. You know, I think p- part of it was that there was a period a few years ago when vitamin D was being looked at as, as the miracle cure yes. for almost everything, and then that was debunked. So I, I can tell you personally, I used to, well, I'm taking vitamin D, yeah. but it's like, what do I need vitamin D yeah, for? Yeah, I think it's, you're. I yeah. think you're right. I don't think yeah. it's a miracle miracle cure by any stretch. And back, I remember you're right. A few yeah. years ago, people were recommending super high doses of vitamin D as yeah. well. And and I'm not even sure why that was happening. But the reality is, it does help with that calcium absorption. That's really the benefit you're going to get. Beyond that, I mean, some people complain with low vitamin D levels occasionally of that uh, uh, bone pain that could happen. Most likely due to the fact they probably have some early onset osteoporosis already, and that's what's contributing to it. But again, it's not the end of the world, but I would, uh, if you feel like you're low or you don't get out and about in the sun, uh, you know, supplementing won't hurt. Supplementing is a, a good idea yeah. for some people. And uh, again, is is there are there any uh, medications that can lower your vitamin D? There are. I mean, uh, certain medications will bind vitamin D, especially if you're taking them at the same time. Others, if you're on diuretics, occasionally we see those patients can get low on a lot of things because you're flushing kind of uh, uh, things through the kidney. But, um, you know, specifically lowering it, you know, there may be uh, certain drugs, but not nothing that I think of that's common anyways. Uh, I think more it's related to kind of the weather and, and what we experience here in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this, this uh, winter in particular. Yeah. Uh, and again... Uh, back to uh, going to the hospital and getting out of the hospital. Um, are there any other pitfalls? Yeah, I think one of the things about getting out of the hospital, a lot of times people will get 
you know, will be in hospital, they'll, they'll, they'll have surgery or some other reason they're there, and they're standing orders. So, uh, you know, they just get put on things that's, you know, everyone gets put on that's going into hospital. And what happens is occasionally they'll get discharged on all that stuff. So it's worthwhile after you've been come out of the hospital to also sit down with your pharmacist, uh, you know, have a medication review. And the idea there is actually the opposite of before. It's to de-prescribe. It's to t- start taking you off stuff you may no longer need because those things get stuck on your profile. People forget why they were put there. A lot of times the doctors forget, and they just keep getting renewed, right? And the idea, and what, I used to see that all the time. What are some of those things? Uh, things like, uh, you know, we talked about the sometimes the pain medications that will happen. Stool softener is very common. The most mm-hmm. common is the... The antacids, like the PPIs, we call them, proton pump inhibitors. I think because uh, hospital experience can be kind of stressful for people, a lot of times they get put on those in hospital uh, 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 to prevent that kind of reflux and whatnot. Uh, Again, uh, they don't have to be on those long term. So it's really about kind of sitting with your pharmacist and going over your medication history and saying, Hey, let's get you off some of this stuff. You don't need it anymore. Sleeping pills is another one. People sometimes have challenges sleeping in a hospital and they'll get put on uh, a sleeping pill. They may not necessarily need that anymore when they come out. So let's, let's get that off, clean up your profile, prevent potential medication errors down the line. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting. You mentioned a, a stool softener. I don't love to talk yeah. about stuff like that, but I remember a, a doctor telling me, and it was uh, a, he was a specialist in colonoscopies, that sometimes people stay on those long-term and they cause a lot of damage. Uh, what's that stuff, Senecot? Senecot is a, a, one that concerns me. So uh, there are different types of medications that will do that, but Senecot's a stimulant laxative. If you stay on those uh, stimulant laxatives for long periods of time, it's, it can cause lazy bowel. And what that means is your bowel just stops, like, working on its own. It's just used to having the medication there, doing the work for it. And uh, it's something that we, you know, we keep an eye out. If you're on opioids, you should be on a stimulant laxative because the opioids will cause constipation. But beyond that, it's something we keep an eye on. Try to manage that constipation in other ways also, if possible. Uh, And in some patients, there's no ways around it and we have to keep them on it. But again, it's a case-by-case type situation. Okay. uh, Let's take a call from Dimitri here in Toronto. Hello, Dimitri. Hello, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? Not bad. Go ahead. Um, I needed uh, you to address the Canadian public and uh, express to them when uh, average statistics on doctors' mistakes are going to be handed out and uh, printed out for all Canadians to uh, know chronologically, uh, present, past, present, and the future. When all doctors are going to let uh, uh, Canadians know chronological average uh, doctors... Dimitri, I'm, I'm sorry, um, we're, we're just, um, we're, we're taking calls about <laughs> drugs, and, and I'm not really sure uh, what you're talking about, so uh, thanks, thanks for your call. Yeah, it seemed like he was talking about uh, medication errors and, and, and maybe when that's public, but a lot of that stuff actually is public, yeah. right? And hospitals will report it. We know one of the most common uh, reasons that people visit uh, ERs is because of adverse drug reactions. And that's kind of what we're talking about here today. Let's clean up the profiles of, you know, the Canadian public, make sure they're on the right medications, and the pharmacists are there to help with that. And that that will protect, protect these uh, drug therapy issues down the line for sure. Okay. That's uh, a good way of putting it. And, and it is uh, adverse reaction and, and medical errors are becoming more public, though they 
aren't always, obviously. Sure. I mean, we. I mean, I don't think uh, uh, you know the prof- the health professions. They they try to quantify it. They qu- try to document that th- type of stuff. So we we have some quality improvement measures. I mean, uh, whenever you're dealing with people, there'll be mistakes that are made. But the reality is, the frequency of those errors are very, very, very low. And we have processes in place to try to prevent them. But they do happen, and it's the way that you manage it afterwards. I think that's very important. And uh, you know, we were talking about the Senecot before. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is something people really ought to know about. But do you find that now there there are more and more things available over the counter? And does that lead to problems because people are self-medicating and maybe taking too much of one thing or that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, access is one thing, and it's important for us to have, you know, medications accessible easily. The problem is I think there's this misconception that, Products being available over the counter mean that they're entirely safe. And that's not the case, especially many of these drugs will interact with your prescription medications. If you overdo it, they could be very, very dangerous. Something even as simple as plain Tylenol. You go over, you keep exceeding four grams a day, you're going to hurt your liver, right? So there's, you know, there's considerations that need to be made. And that's, you know, why you should reach out to your pharmacist. If you're not sure, Speak to them. If you have concerns or you're on multiple medications, speak to them. The idea is let's get you on the right medications, even if they're over the counter, based on everything else that you're taking. I mean, in certain provinces now, uh, pharmacists have either uh, the ability to prescribe for minor ailments. We see that, and that's very effective. You could go into the pharmacy, get better access to care. In Alberta, pharmacists could prescribe. And I, I, I'm one to go that route, have the healthcare provider involved in those decision-making processes. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I should take another call. We have less than a minute left. Nora, can you ask your question in about 20 seconds? Yes. I don't take any medication, and uh, I'm worried a little bit about my bones. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll let John uh, respond about what you should take. Very, very easy. If you're worried about your bones, not a bad idea to take calcium and vitamin D if you have a family history of kind of osteoporosis. Even, no. even more easily, go and get a DEXA scan. Ask your physician about it. They'll tell you definitively if, uh, if you have the early signs of osteoporosis, and then we can manage it from there. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, That's all the time we have. Thanks so much to our trusted contributor, John Papasturgio, from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. That's all the time we have, and we now break for traffic and news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.